Father, we give you thanks for the opportunity to gather again and to continue in our study. We thank you for the uh, wonderful work the committee has done on our behalf, and we pray that you would bless their efforts for good, for the cause of Christ, and particularly the cause of Christ and the PCA. And we pray that this would be fruitful in our own lives as it helps us to understand our time and place and how we can be best useful to those around us. Uh, And so we pray that uh, you would continue to guide our studies, to work in our hearts by your spirit to understand and to embrace the truth and then give us faithfulness to live it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening again uh, to you all. I'm glad to be together and to take up tonight um, what I'm calling part five of the paper, Apologetic Approaches for Speaking to the World. Um, There are two parts to this uh, apologetic approaches. Uh, Tonight, the first part, uh, we are going to look at contemporary narrative and challenges. Um, But before we go any further, questions about last week, our discussion on terminology, anything that is of concern to you that um, you'd like to raise? All right, I don't see uh, anyone. So apologetic approaches for speaking to the world. Just a few simple notes on introduction. The... uh, uh, I'm sure you all know the word apologetic doesn't mean that we're saying we're sorry uh, about uh, what we think or believe. This is the technical sense of the word apologetic, meaning giving a defense uh, of a position. Uh, mostly it's defensive in that way, um, but it also can have a, a, a more um, uh, outward uh, uh, sense of um, critiquing alternate uh, points of view that are, you think are mistaken. So it's how we're going to talk to who? The world. Well, you and I aren't going to be talking to the whole world. Clearly, that that must be another word for um, saying uh, unbelief, unbelievers. Um, so the way we're going to speak to unbelievers to help them understand and perhaps be persuaded of the Christian position on these questions. Now, the first section we're going to take up, the contemporary narrative on sexuality, reminds us that persuasion uh, has an antecedent condition, and that is that the person you're talking to thinks that what you're saying might be plausible. Uh, if there isn't plausibility, then you can't even get a hearing for your arguments. And uh, so, for example, most people don't uh, think that the moon is made of green cheese. And so, uh, no matter how skillful a person would be in argumentation, they're just not going to get a hearing with respect to uh, an argument about the moon being made of uh, green cheese because it's utterly implausible to us. And one of the great um, horrors of our time, in a way, and I think horror is not too strong a word, is that the Christian position on sexuality uh, seems utterly implausible 
to uh, most of our contemporaries. And um, I think the first section of this part of the paper, the contemporary narrative on sexuality, helps us to see that problem in, uh, with respect to implausibility in a very powerful and very lucid way. So, um, two parts to this section on uh, narrative and challenges. There, it's in the title. The first part is contemporary narrative of sexuality. Uh, the second, uh, three challenges for Christians today. They're going to have us look at um, how we speak to the modern identity narrative, uh, uh, background beliefs that people have about identity and power. Uh, they're going to have us uh, address um, the historical narrative of the first Christian sexual revolution, particularly uh, trying to have us see that there's an enormous ignorance of matters of great import here. And then thirdly, we're going to look just briefly at um, the church's teaching about sexuality uh, founded in its theology uh, rather than in simply declaring its rules or its ethics. Um, the bulk of that will be taken up next week. Um, so, the assembly, uh, the, the 47th assembly, uh, instructed the committee to come up with ways to articulate and defend a biblical understanding of homosexuality, same-sex attraction, trans- transgenderism, uh, in the context of a culture that denies that understanding. So there's their um, uh, object given by the assembly, and uh, they're uh, hoping to follow up and be helpful. They notice that they're not writing to the skeptic, but rather they're writing to believers uh, to help believers understand the way in which you might want to address the skeptic and what would be necessary. So then, the contemporary narrative of sexuality, um, the uh, and they lay out what they think are five principles of unbelief that now reign in our society with respect to sex. And, and these principles really are crucial to master if we're to understand uh, the mindset of folks that we might be talking to. And, and as I say, here is the question of plausibility. You'll see that our, our arguments aren't likely to make any progress as long as this mindset is unchallenged. The first is a persuasion uh, of oppression on these questions in the past. Uh, that um, uh, they uh, suppose that sex outside of marriage was forbidden in order to control women, uh, that they might be treated as the property of men. And so this is part of a mis- uh, patriarchal and uh, misogynistic uh, cultural form uh, that has brought about such strictures about se- sexuality. Uh, the second is that um, uh, there's a profound commitment to the idea uh, of the rights of individuals, uh, the freedom they have to do as they will, uh, in order to be authentic, to be true to themselves. 
And um, that means to be able to uh, express your sexuality in any way you want, as long as it's consensual. Uh, that's uh, the critical thing. Um, that's the one uh, preeminent rule uh, that uh, they think that uh, in the past, uh, sex was seen as suspicious uh, rather than a healthy and crucial part of who you are. And um, that the only way, in fact, for a person to flourish is uh, their untrammeled right to choose how they would express their sexuality. So there's the second, authenticity and freedom. The third uh, is that there has been an ongoing uh, and courageous battle in favor of these values as articulated in uh, uh, number two. And um, folk, they note, usually women, gay, and transgender folks have... um, stood up to an impressive culture and um, have refused to be cowed by it, to be uh, held in bondage, uh, and many uh, suffered profoundly in the course of that fight. So there's this, um, there's this cloud of witnesses for these uh, sexual libertines who are standing, as it were, like the writer of Hebrews and looking down upon those who are continuing the fight and cheering them on, and they, they feel a profound uh, responsibility to the past. Uh, and the fact is uh, that um, they have made great progress. Um, the uh, You certainly can have sex outside of marriage, uh, you certainly can conduct same-sex relations. The, uh, the legal institution of marriage is suffering profoundly. And uh, these changes, which would almost have been unimaginable 50 years ago, uh, are now commonplace. And they, they, they think they've had a great victory. And um, that really, ours is the first society that is sex-positive and where people can live in freedom uh, in their self-chosen sexual uh, identity. But, and then fifthly, uh, there's continual danger. Uh, The forces of um, uh, retrograde um, uh, impulses are constantly at the door. Um, And... uh, There are forces, particularly from the church, folks like you and my, that are regressive um, and want to turn back the clock and are doing everything they can uh, within their powers, particularly uh, using um, uh, political forces and legal forces uh, to take all of the wonderful liberty and victory that folks have had um, and the thing is, um, this is all seeking to understand the worldview of the people we need to communicate to and understand how powerfully that if you adhere to each one of these propositions, um, you're not going to find plausible at all Christian arguments, or at least not the way they're typically portrayed. Um, 
And furthermore, what we have to admit is that there are elements of truth in uh, these five propositions. Um, and we need to understand where the truth is and where the error is and how, in order to uh, show that we're willing to listen and be reasonable, uh, th that we could grant that there are elements of truth in those five uh, principles. Um, so this is the, the story. Um, the, uh, this is the plot line of um, people in this movement. And uh, they uh, feel like they've been courageous in uh, opposing uh, bigoted, oppressive villains. And that's what you and I are if we hold to the Christian view. Um, and they think this is going to, there's going to be a happy ending, that regressive forces will finally be overturned. Um, the, uh, as I say, uh, uh, very little about those five points are proven convictions. They're assumed as a part of that worldview. Um, and Here's the crucial point. This is on page uh, 35, uh, first full paragraph, uh, about the end. Our authors say Christians cannot speak to the world about sex in a compelling way if we merely answer the story with a list of moral imperatives, however biblical. Do you see that? It, it, a, a list of rules, even rules that you can give good arguments for aren't going to address the force uh, of this um, mindset that creates the world in which they see themselves as heroes of uh, authenticity, of um, personal agency, and uh, um, genuine identity. So the point of our authors then is that we need to put the Christian sex ethic into a counter narrative. We need to have a big story to tell that counters the five points of the narrative of uh, uh, the liberationists. Uh, a, a counter narrative that's rooted in the Bible's narrative. The Bible tells a story. And that story informs all believers who are anything more than surface, uh, in a surface way, attached to a few propositions. It informs their whole sense of self and the world. And in order to um, set forth the Bible's great story, this counter-narrative, uh, there are three challenges that they think that need to be addressed. Um, but let me pause there and see if uh, anyone has a question or comment about what we've done thus far. All right. Oh, I, I, uh, sorry, it seems like every, this is Jenny. Yes. Um, so when you started out, you said this is a, an apology to unbelievers. Is that correct? Uh, largely unbelievers, uh, although there are some belie uh, believers who hold to a similar narrative. 
they're yeah, living in I contradiction mean. with themselves. But right. So it seems to me that this way of this progressive way of thinking, or however you want to put it, um, is very prevalent in younger believers who have bought into the idea that uh, people are born with this. And so, um, and then also believers who have um, come back to the church but want to, um, they they don't, there's still um, not persuaded that it, it's altogether wrong because the persuasion on the part of the um, counter culture that's not biblical, the homosexuals, um, is so strong. And, and because, as I understand it, there are interpretations of biblical passages that they use to show that the Bible doesn't even teach that homosexuality is wrong. Yeah, there's been an attempt at that, but it's gone on long enough that um, it, it really doesn't hold much water any longer. Uh, well, it doesn't, it, but it does with them. No, I, I mean, even there are very few people who think a significant case can be made that the Bible doesn't teach uh, what historically um, the churches huh. thought it did. Uh, okay. it, it's just, it's like at the beginning of the Unitarian controversy in New England in the 18th century. At first, the Unitarians were arguing from Scripture that Scripture didn't teach Trinity. And uh, the Trinitarians were arguing to the counter. Uh, but as the argument went on, the Unitarians finally gave up and said, you're right. The scripture does teach the Trinity, but it's an absurd thing, and it, it's right. a primitive document. And that's pretty much, I think we're at the shifting point now on that question, uh, that they still don't like what the scripture teaches, but they, there's very little ground for arguing the scripture doesn't teach it. Okay. And um, your five points? Yeah. Um, I didn't get the fourth. I think... So I got oppression from past eras to the rights of individuals to be authentic. Three, uh, ongoing battles standing up to an oppressive culture. And five, continued danger. What is number four? Uh, that um, the, uh, the victory has been won. Oh. And they need to celebrate the enormous advances that they've made. And that they have a, a duty to preserve that. Right. Okay. Uh, uh-huh. All right. Anyone else? Can you talk a little about the speed to which this narrative has um, arisen? Because I was just thinking about how in um, 2006, Virginians overwhelmingly supported an amendment to the um, Virginia Constitution that said that marriage is between a man and a woman. And so in the past 15 years, I don't I don't think a similar amendment would pass today. I, I think that's right. Well, yeah, just think of this, that uh, President Obama 
when he first ran, said that he was in favor of civil rights for homosexuals, but he wasn't in favor of homosexual marriage because he thought it was against the scripture. So, I mean, that's just today, you know, if a major Democratic candidate wanted to say something like that, they'd get shouted out of their party. So it's, it is shocking. I think that there are several cultural rivers that have come to a confluence that caused it to rush ahead so well, so much. And in fact, our paper is going to bring up two of them. And so if you don't mind, I'll wait till we get there, Austin. Sure. But that does argue that this really important work of understanding who we're speaking to needs to be redone on a fairly regular basis because who we're speaking to will have different views. Yeah, that's a good point. On a fairly routine basis. Yeah, that's a good point, Paul. And when I was very young as a believer, I was very enthusiastic about apologetics. And the older I've gotten, the less enthusiastic I am because you master some point of view that you think is erroneous. You come up with what you think are great arguments and then try and find a winsome and compelling way to frame those arguments. And by the time you've done all that, something else has come along and the thing you were working against has become passe. It's like whack-a-mole. And so it takes an enormous amount of perseverance on people's part. But one thing, I think our authors have helped us enormously in winnowing down at least what is for now the understanding of themselves in the world that are animating those who are against the Christian ethic and sexuality. Anything else? All right, well, let's press on to the three challenges for Christians today. The first challenge is what our authors call the modern identity narrative. It's sort of background beliefs, framework beliefs, having to do with identity, the idea of identity, and the idea of agency or the power to act, if you will. And these two ideas, they think, have been instilled into many, many people through the elite cultural institutions for nearly three generations is their assertion. So the first of these, identity. Christian prohibitions make no sense because folks have come to see that sexuality is a crucial part of one's identity. And behind that is the concept of the modern self. The old way of looking at sex 
was that it's a way to honor God uh, and to create and nurture new life. And they would, they also uh, think, and they didn't draw it out here, but um, a critical way in which husband and wife love and care for each other. Um, the um, and the the positions taken. Well, that's all well and good if that's what you want to do, but that's not uh, the primary reason uh, for sex. Rather, it's self fulfillment, it's self realization, um, and this the authors note is what is called today expressive individualism. Uh, and this is a term that's been used in social science and in psychology for some time to try and capture uh, this idea that for me to be who I am, I need to f- find my feelings and desires, discover them, and find a way to express them in order for me to be my true self. Uh, so that uh, my, my true self is somewhere buried within, in in uh, my deepest desires. And I've got to discover them, express them, and be authentic in that. And that's in contrast to the older way uh, of thinking that um, your identity was found in your calling, in, in, in your duties and relationships. Um, and these couldn't be more at odds with one another. So the point is then, with expressive individualism, um, acting on your sexual desire becomes a crucial part of being an authentic person. And this is simply a given. Uh, And they note the slogans that people uh, throw around, be true to yourself, live your own truth, Uh, Anything else is understood to be repressive and unhealthy. Uh, Now the authors note that this is an extremely fragile program uh, because anything that's based on inward feelings, well, all of us know that we all feel uh, different uh, all the time. (laughs) Um, That our feelings, well, think now about the way people are feeling about themselves in the world after a year of the pandemic profound shifts in self-consciousness. And if your true self, your identity, is rooted in feelings, uh, then it's going to be ever-shifting and contradictory. Uh, um, But added on to that, not only is it fragile, uh, but it's a crushing way of looking at yourself. Because at the end of the day, it's completely up to you to achieve this uh, exploration and expression and authentic character. Um, the um, and they urge that you know on page thirty six that this view of identity requires what they call a soft relativism. Um, the um, only I can determine for myself uh, what is right or wrong. Uh, and yet, at the same time, the, uh, there, that principle is contradicted by the fact that uh, 
this same view has some pretty uh, powerful absolutes that are non-negotiable. Um, and one of them is just that, that uh, only I can determine what's right and wrong for myself. That is a moral dictum that must be bowed to, even if I don't think that that's the only way. <laughs> uh, so you, you see the inherent instability and contradictory character of this uh, understanding of identity. Uh, the second is freedom and power. Um, the um, And what they have in mind here is that, um, and this is the confluence, Austin, that I, I, I had in mind, they're noticing that um, the individualist view of identity has grew up in the 19th century in the period of Romanticism. But what has made that powerful uh, beyond expectation, almost beyond imagination, is that it has recently been added to the most postmodern view of freedom and power. And that view is that all power in culture is, is exercised through um, thought and speech, um, language and truth claims. And those words, those claims have nothing to do with the truth, but they have only to do with the way of being dominant, of being powerful. Um, so that everything that you believe, true, good, right, beautiful, is a social construct developed by a particular power to keep certain elites in power. Um, that's all it is. It's for the sake of gaining and maintaining power. And so the combination of those two things uh, has uh, made the whole thing uh, extraordinarily um, potent and toxic. Um, so to be free means to be freed from the dominant narrative. And in fact, to uh, you, you have to try and undo uh, these dominant discourses. They call it uh, destabilizing the dominant discourses. Um, so the, the example they give is that if tra transgendered people are to have a place, uh, you, should, you don't just show compassion for them. You've got to undo the very idea of a male and female binary that's at the essence of human being. You've got to undo that altogether in order to make a place uh, for pe transgender people. Um, so postmodern view of freedom and power tied uh, to the romantic uh, periods uh, individual identity understanding, and this uh, brings more contradiction. Um, and they try and show this, that if all truth claims and moral judgments are just ways of exercising power, then how could one set of power brokers be wrong or unjust? How do you determine whose set of socially structured power relationships are wrong and whose are right? 
you don't have any objective norm by which to judge between them, uh, especially if you don't have any idea of a God. There's no transcendent um, judge. Um, and so uh, the um, they note uh, the tensions in this, and yet uh, the two ideas have merged and become dominant and persuasive, and it, it's really not open to analysis because analysis is another form of power gain. Um, and it, it, it has filtered down into the uh, most shallow levels of popular culture. And it, it uh, is doing great harm, but it means that um, we uh, have got a huge task before us. Uh, on page 36, uh, just before the last paragraph, um, they have a summation. Uh, they say, the meaning of life is to determine who you are and to throw off the shackles of an oppressive society that refuses to accept and include you. This is the way uh, that you, you understand yourself and your place in the world, and uh, this is what guides your decision-making uh, process. And uh, in the last paragraph, they bring uh, up the point that um, the uh, Christian people have bought into this stuff, um, in, in a host of ways that the church has sort of followed along with some of these views of identity and freedom, uh, at least practically so, with respect to ministry techniques and so on. Um, and uh, especially in, uh, they note, uh, evangelical youth ministry um, that uh, has abandoned doctrine as a foundation for the Christian self-understanding and put in its place uh, Christ is the one who helps with my self-esteem and meets my emotional needs. Um, that, uh, you know, the phrase that I think James Davison Hunter coined, uh, that um, Christianity has been into uh, a uh, form of uh, therapeutic moralism uh, deistic therapeutic moralism. There is a God, but God's removed. Uh, the point of it is, is therapy for for me to self-actualize uh, and moralism that there are certain rules that I follow. Well, on the top of page 37, um, the, our authors give us a catalog of Christian counterfeits that have bought into this sort of thing. Uh, the prosperity gospel, uh, churches and ministries without membership and discipline, uh, consumer-oriented megachurches, all of these um, have uh, adapted to the culture of expressive individualism rather than challenging it. Um, and thus, they conclude that as long as folk hold on to these views, they're not going to be able to find the Christian view of sexuality plausible. Uh, and so an apologetic can't really have an impact um, unless it uh, can show 
the deeply problematic uh, nature of these background beliefs. Uh, in other words, uh, a sexual apologetic can't talk only about sex. It has to offer a biblical framework of uh, uh, that's rooted in uh, losing your self in the love and service of God in order to be your true self uh, and that that self is uh, comes from the hand of God himself uh, it's in that context that Christian sexual ethics makes sense the only thing I'd add here is uh, I think this is a very powerful point I don't want to diminish from it at all but I if I were Writing this, I would also add that nevertheless, the people who hold these views are created in the image of God. And that reality of their created nature is going to be uh, secretly at war with this false ideology that they've adopted. And so there's always going to be a way to appeal to that reality. Uh, And often it will be the sudden chink in the armor where that created reality is seen just a glimpse that's the beginning of the undermining of the whole ideology more than any set of profound arguments. Well, let me uh, stop there for a minute and uh, see if you have questions or comments on that uh, first challenge. the essence and being of humans is image of God and for people of this conviction is the essence some sort of absolute freedom yes to find yourself yes hmm. and it's a terrifying freedom because um, that the uh, all, all freedom that is a value is in the context of a form. Uh, and to, to have unfettered freedom is to be, um, well, <laughs> the, uh, uh, I think of the locusts. Um, they clearly have great energy, but they don't seem to have any idea what they're doing. They fly. Usually, you think of flight as something graceful and beautiful, and they look like they're stumbling while they fly. <laughs> and the the um, and you see the. Well, let me give you an example of it. The uh, use of the English language. Um, you have a certain freedom. But if you have no boundaries whatsoever, soon you can't use the language to communicate. If you have the freedom to make words mean anything you want to, you're you're in wonderland. Um, and uh, you couldn't make yourself understood. So that your freedom has to be exercised within forms in order for it to be um, a, a, a genuine example of personal agency. I think that I guess at a point in an article this week by a 
professor at Grove College. I think his name is um, Carl Truman. Oh, yeah, it's Grove City. So he wrote an article on this topic of expressive individualism, and he wrote that, and I'll just have a quote here, that while these trends, and he's speaking about the expressive individualism, what a success, or it, it would suggest that society is tilting in an individualistic and libertarian direction, the paradoxical truth is that it's actually driving us toward a new and worrying authoritarianism, which kind of gets at what you're saying about yes. it has to have a form. Yeah, yeah, Car yeah. Uh, Carl Truman is a brilliant fellow, and uh, he's very good on his book on this subject. is very powerful. Um, oh, thanks, Austin. That's it. Uh, yep, I just dropped it in the chat. If oh, super. Thank you. All right, anybody else? Let's press on then. Challenge two. Um, I, I think this section of the paper is absolutely fascinating. And uh, I think for, uh, I'm not going to be able to do all I wanted to do because there's so much left to cover here for tonight. But um, here what they're saying is that uh, one of the, oh, Bonnie or Bill or the Chambers, yes. I'm sorry, Dave. I just wanted to, I think your point that you, mentioned that you would have added to this if you were writing it. That point um, probably deserves further discussion, but it, it's a powerful point. And uh, what I struggle with is what you described as um, the fact that men and women, that, that, that there are no mortals and that men and women are created in God's image, but that each individual secret, secretly knows that, um, and that's a chink in this in this armor yes. of this of this overriding cultural philosophy. Um, the, the thing that's a challenge, of course, is how buried is that? How, yes. How many layers of of uh, rationalization and and cultural philosophy are on top of that. Right. And um, certainly the Holy Spirit can move in a way that makes it obvious to us. But um, I think it's a great thing for us to remember our, in our interactions that there is there is a glimmer, there's a hope yes. there that you can touch that nerve somehow. Yeah, and I, I think, Bill, that um, uh, C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters uh, gives us a hint of how that could come about. Do you remember um, when uh, uh, you know what is it? Uh, we have Wormwood uh, giving counsel, right? Or no, Wormwood's the counselee. Is that right? <laughs> Yeah, Wormwood's the counselee, and Screwtape says to Wormwood that um, once you get a person in a emotional and intellectual fog, that's where you want to keep them. <laughs> and you want to make sure that they don't ever feel any real pain uh, or any 
real pleasure because that uh, interrupts and shocks the system um, and uh, awakens again the, a, a glimmer that no, there's something wrong or there's something so right about that and it doesn't. Do you remember that point? I thought it was just brilliant that don't let them feel any real pain or real pleasure because that'll ruin the fog yeah. that they're living in. Yeah. yeah, that's a good, that's a good example. Thank you, Dave. Yeah. Any, anyone else? All right. Challenge two. Um, here we have a, uh, um, an ignorance that is uh, powerfully um, mistaken, uh, that um, undermines the testimony of Christianity in the world. And what they want to argue is that, in fact, Christians were the ones who uh, uh, propagated the first sexual revolution. Um, The study of the history of sex is a a relatively modern um, uh, field, among historians and sociologists and so on. And um, the the normal way of thinking about the history of sexuality is that um, uh, pagan people got along great with respect to their sexuality. The church comes along and is repressive and crushes uh, sexuality and uh, puts people into bondage. And it's only when folks are liberated from Christianity that they are—they find themselves truly sexually. And our, the author's point is toward uh, some remarkable things that have been uh, going on in scholarship. Particularly, they note this is on page uh, 37 uh, near the bottom. They note the uh, scholarship of Kyle Harper. Um, Kyle Harper is professor of classics and letters at the University of Oklahoma. Um, And they mention his book, From Shame to Sin, colon, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity. A remarkable book. Um, uh, I found for you a review of the book, in Reformation 21, and I've put that into the chat, and it, it is well worth reading uh, to get more of what Professor Harper is uh, talking about. But the book, From Shame, Shame to Sin, won the uh, Award for Excellence in the Study of Religion uh, from the American Academy of Religion. So uh, you see it's published by Harvard University Press. So this is no uh, backwater fundy analysis. This is uh, from one of the most important gatekeepers in uh, high culture. And um, and yet his argument is uh, that um, uh, in fact Christianity introduced a sexual revolution that overcame a deeply distorted understanding of sexuality that belonged to the classical world. Uh, They also cite Peter Brown. Um, He is a professor emeritus uh, at Princeton University. Again, uh, a major institution. 
And uh, in fact, Brown, who, whose book was uh, groundbreaking in the period, uh, you see, um, some years before Harper's work, um, but uh, Brown in, a, in the New York Review in nineteen uh, in twenty thirteen. Uh, wrote a review of Harper's book and said it is a scintillating contribution. I wish I had had a book as clear, as cogent, and as intellectually responsible before me when I began to write on similar topics in the early 1980s, some third of a century ago. One can only envy the good fortune of those who now embark on their own work with such a book in hand. So it's a very powerful uh, analysis, and they're going to—they want us to understand um, that the popular history uh, that talks about Roman world as a time of sexual freedom and diversity, uh, and Christianity then came along with a restrictive ethic and undermined the whole thing. And what Harper says that, on the contrary. Um, this is a caricature at the very best. And to get it overall, what Harper's arguing is that in the Greco-Roman world, sex was about um, the city. And he uses that as an image for uh, human society. And there really wasn't a sexual ethic. There was the way that sex was used by different strata of society. So women had one responsibility. Women had to provide children to keep the city going. And it was important that there be lineage and inheritance and so on. And so to be an upright woman, it meant that your baby-producing uh, circumstances can't be spoilt in any way. Uh, so they had to be virgins at marriage and couldn't have anyone sex with anyone uh, but uh, their husbands. Um, on the other hand, all men could have sex with anybody they wanted to except for a married woman um, with servants, slaves, prostitutes, uh, boys, uh, anyone who is under them in the social order, uh, they could use for their own purposes. Anyone but, uh, as I say, the, uh, the wife of another um, patron. Um, so uh, it, there was a restrictive ethic uh, because of one social purpose and need, another one f uh, for others, and um the uh, and Christianity came into this with an utterly different understanding of sexuality, and that led to a different sexual ethic. Um, on page thirty-eight, they say that the pagan code was more permissive for men, but the underlying logic, or um, Vision for sex propounded by Christians was vastly more positive and humane than the pagan one. And the practical outcome was that it was enormously protective of the good of uh, women and children. 
Um, and so they say that uh, generally in culture, sexual morality is rooted in the uh, understanding you have of what sex is for. Um, in Rome, um, sexual morality, as we've said, was determined by social status and power. It was for nothing but pleasure and personal pleasure and the enhancement of people with rank. Uh, and sex was wrong only uh, if it destroyed what was needful for the city, uh, that, that is social order and hierarchy and the producing of children. Um, Christianity, on the other hand, uh, radically challenged what Harper calls the foundational logic of sex for the Greco-Roman world. And in this interesting phrase, the cosmos replaces the city as the framework of morality. Not what the human needs were as understood for the propagation of human civilizations, but now the cosmos, what God had appointed sexuality for, uh, for his purposes in creation. And um, the, uh, the point is that for the Christian way of understanding it, uh, the um, sexuality was a part of God's redemptive narrative for the earth, the fallen earth. And we've already touched on this in some ways in our study of Dr. Packer, Concise Theology, when we got to marriage and family. But we've seen how critical that institution is to God's, not, not only his creation plan, it was from the very beginning, man created in the image of God, male and female, to be un united, to become one flesh in love and then the care and nurture of children generation after generation to fulfill God's purposes in the cosmos, not just in uh, human civilization. Um, the, um, so um, the, uh, on the, um, let's see, what page am I on now? Um, this is still on page 38. Um, Harper talks about a revolutionary break where Christians insisted that the rightness or wrongness of sexual acts be determined not by social status and power, but by covenantal love and gender difference. Um, and uh, there was an immediate result that everybody could see. It, it meant that under Christian sexual, sexual ethics, um, the vulnerable were cared for, protected from exploitation. Um, Christianity, they put it, reimagined sex as no longer a mere appetite that we can barely control, but rather as a joyous, even sacred expression that reflects the way God is saving the world. Now here, I, I just want to note um, uh, because it's crucial to this story. and uh, uh, But if you look at the review I sent you, the reviewer there brings this point up. And I, let me just read it, because uh, it's a, a counterbalance to what was happening with Christianity and sexuality in the, ancient, in the Roman world. Uh, 
he notes, the tragic irony is that a religion that called for freedom and dignity for all people ended up demeaning sexual desire even within marriage, uh, which Orthodox Christians consistently defended, that is marriage, consistently defended, but only on procreative grounds. It is this negative teaching about sexuality that came to define the Christian legacy through the medieval period just as much as the more positive teaching about freedom, dignity, and the goods of marriage. And so the reviewer notes, Harper's important book reveals how central Christian teaching regarding sexuality was to the early Christian understanding of the gospel and how salutary was its effect on Roman society and sexual culture. But it also reminds us of how much that teaching was corrupted by non-scriptural assumptions about the sinfulness of sexual uh, desire. So uh, I'll just add that note. Oh, dear. (laughs) We are... um, Well, I'm never going to get through the last bit in the uh, minute and a half or so that we have remaining, and there's maybe uh, worth stopping here and... um, See if you have any questions, because these things are so interesting and so powerful and such a help to us at this time. As far as I can tell, Harper has no religious commitments at all. He's just an outstanding uh, historian who's uh, looking closely at um, uh, 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 original sources, a master of the languages of the period. And um, But uh, let me just say that... Um, um, on page 39 in the footnote, um, uh, our authors also cite uh, an article of Harper's in First Things, and they give you the link. And so if you want to get a taste of Harper without re- reading the whole book uh, before the next time we get together, I'd urge you, that's footnote 68, uh, the First Things um, link at the end of the footnote, uh, we'll start uh, from page 39, the second uh, modern sexual revolution next time. And uh, I'll just j- jam everything in somehow. Uh, but questions or comments on anything we've uh, spoken of so far, this first sexual revolution that uh, uh, so powerfully um, really came to the rescue of sexuality uh, so far as the classical world was concerned. Chambers. We didn't have our hand up. Oh, so I'm, s- you <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, for some reason, the yellow box was around your name, and I, I, I just assumed that you had done something to try and get my attention. Um, anyone a comment, a question? Um We've covered a lot tonight. I know maybe your head is spinning. Um, the uh, Dave, this is Paul. I, um, it's all very, very interesting. The, the biggest challenge to me is young people don't really think history exists. And so anything that happened before they were born doesn't really matter. <laughs> And all this happened well before we were all born. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. 
right, right. The um, uh, and um, again, it's part of a. Uh, it's part of the corruption of our culture now, uh, but um, I do, I do think that um, uh, we are created uh, to be people who are uh, interested in history. Our self-consciousness is uh, to remember who we are uh, in relationship to the things past and what we've gone through. And as we uh, have that self-consciousness impressed on us, uh, I think that's why in every generation, somehow or another, historical studies get revived from whatever challenges they face. Because what, if I see that about myself, then I see that about my family. And I, I mean, here's the thing. As corrupt as uh, postmodernism has been with respect to the mind and uh, object tr truth, uh, genealogy studies are flourishing right now in a way they've never flourished in the history of the country, probably in the history of the world, except for the Israelites. I mean, they, they, they were the all-time genealogists. But that's a remarkable thing, and I think a sign of hope. Kate, or Will. If, um, when did things change from, and why, from the original view of sexuality in the New Testament to the medieval view? Uh, it Actually, our text is going to get to that a little bit. Um, but the um, uh, one of the great aids to Christians trying to speak to the pagan world was Neoplatonism. Uh, because there were certain categories that fit well with the Christian message. But Neoplatonism at the same time was deeply infected by um, an anti-material uh, impulse. So uh, the soul, the highest part, Christians like that, was embodied but for Neoplatonism, that wasn't just a body, it was a prison that was limiting the soul. And what redemption meant was being uh, freed from that prison house of the body. Um, and so the uh, infusion of uh, Platonistic, Neoplatonistic thinking had a, a profoundly negative effect on um, uh, the Christian faith because it it led to people becoming ascetics and thinking that they ought to uh, have nothing but suspicion for the bodily and all bodily motions. Um, but that tension, that temptation was there from the beginning. You remember Paul has to deal with um, sexual immorality in the church of Corinth. And Remember, we're talking about a culture where, at least on the high end, uh, men could use people sexually virtually any time they wanted. Um, 
and so as you had people become converted, uh, on the one hand, he, he has to, you know, he raises that powerful argument in First Corinthians uh, seven, um, the uh, or First Corinthians six, uh, trying to show why porneia is so corrupting uh, for the Christian, and um, but on the other hand. <laughs> The, you remember that there were those who, uh, Paul, in the first part of 7, he has to tell them, if, if you're a husband and wife, you have a responsibility to have sexual relations. And he says the, uh, the uh, wife owns the husband's body and the husband owns the wife's body. And, and you, uh, ha, because these super spiritual Corinthians, perhaps so repulsed by, their experience of the demeaning sexual character of the Roman Greco culture thought that if you really wanted to be spiritual, even if you were married, you wouldn't have sex. And Paul had to rebuke that. So, um, and you see, in fact, near the end, there must have been a great temptation, uh, that passage in Timothy, where Paul talks about in the end times, that there would be folks who te- teach doctrines of demons by forbidding marriage. Well, that certainly came to be. There were cults in uh, um, Christianity in the early and the med- medieval period, and even the late middle medieval period, that uh, wanted to be uh, completely ascetic because they, uh, and it's partly Paul's. Vocabulary. We talked about that with concise theology. Uh, English translations translated the word flesh, but clearly what Paul used the word for in his letters was the fallen nature. He wasn't speaking of the body as the exclusive source of sin. So those would be some uh, elements, Kate, that I think uh, are part Thanks, of Thanks, Steve. Other questions or comments um i guess uh, van till's views on apologetics is always to heighten the contradictions so he would say not to let the church um, amend itself to expressive individualism in certain ways i think he would say to to stay the course well i i don't think you need to even hold Van Til's views on apologetics to see that that's the thing to do. Um, the, uh, I, I mean, um, that the idea that we, we face is this, that people know the truth, but they uh, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And, uh, believe in a lie. Um, and we know that unless the spirit works, they're never going to break out of that. But we also know the spirit uses means. And some of the means that are used are arguments of various kinds that have the capacity to um, well, sometimes uh, uh, it's um, spoken of as a kind of um, 
uh, demolition work. That comes from Paul's uh, idea that we tear down fortresses with arguments. Uh, and with the for- fortress torn down, it might be that that's the occasion when the spirit works to have a person open their eyes to see there's rubble all around them and they need to find some new place to live. Um, so, uh, in any case, syncretism, uh, 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 no matter what views you hold about apologetics, syncretism is a, a deathly threat to Christianity. And um, uh, and uh, a threat in every age. Other thoughts? Well, again, thank you all for coming. Um, Next week we'll start from page 39 and I'll try and finish off the rest of uh, that section. And uh, uh, then we're on the home stretch. So um, let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for the um, thoughtful and um, penetrating analysis that uh, we have been guided through by our authors. We do pray that you'd help us to understand the character of our own times, to understand the um, way of thinking that um, um, urges people on in uh, a way that's, in fact, a way of darkness. Uh, but that understanding that way of thinking, we can be better fitted to address it. And we thank you for the resources that there are in the gospel. And the way those resources in the past have shown themselves to be powerful to overcome a pagan world. And we pray that that would uh, um, encourage us that those resources are just as powerful in every age. And if we attend to the truth, we can be better enabled to speak the truth in love. And we pray... Uh, that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.